0: We're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life okay we're gonna if you're looking at the original list this is uh, this is number 48 on that on that original list let me read what, uh, what I have written there. Number 48, You said, Old Covenant ministry versus New Covenant ministry. The Old Covenant ministry is an outside-in process with a tremendous focus on behavior and the use of emotional and mental manipulation to, to improve that behavior, which is the means by which we please God. And then the, the answer is no, that's not how we please God. The new covenant ministry is inside out and can be accomplished and cannot be accomplished outside of the internal dwelling of the Holy Spirit. We looked at this topic, uh, probably a couple of years ago, may not have been quite that long time. doesn't make sense to me anymore. I can try to estimate when something happened. It's like, I'll miss it by six years. So anyway, uh. We've, again, we looked at this before and just at the simplicity of that truth that in the Old Testament that that which was expected was very much conformance to the law, behaviors mattered a great deal, the actions great, mattered a great deal because you were set out to do exactly basically what God, the directions he'd given uh, we get to realize, though, in many ways, we'll look at the scriptures tonight about what established, he established in the New Covenant and how it was dynamically different because that which was an external requirement was now accomplished by the giving of the Holy Spirit. I want to begin with Ezekiel chapter 36. We get just an Old Testament look at that quickly. It was prophesied that this, that this would actually happen and so we need to just take a quick look at that. Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'll begin reading with verse 26. <clears throat> I love this scripture. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. We get just such a simple but profound picture of what the intent and heart of God was. that There was a moment coming as we get to look at and study and read where, where Jesus says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, or Paul does, talking about what Jesus accomplished when it says that he blotted out every written ordinance that was against us. And again, we find that basis in the, in the I, I think, in the truth that in the, that we have taught for a long time that the law in the Old Testament was given to help the Jewish people and henceforth us now to live better lives. But when you really study what it says about it being a shadow and that the law being a schoolmaster and what the law couldn't accomplish, what you begin to recognize is that that law wasn't given to teach them how to behave better. It was really given to show them that, that outside of God they couldn't live that way at all. It, it was a standard by which they couldn't keep. You know, we, when when you look at some of these, "I love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your with, with all your soul." There should be no other. There should be no other gods before me. Yet in the Old Testament, you know, you know, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. And but what all those accomplish is really showing me. That I can't keep them. I can dedicate myself to them with all earnest attention, and I will not be able to keep them. So again, even in the, the in the Ten Commandments, we recognize very quickly that about what can be accomplished there is that we can't keep them. But He's telling us here, I have a, I have a plan. I've got a, I've got a direction that we're going. That's going to. It's going to change all that, because when Jesus says, or Paul says about what he accomplished, he blotted out all the written ordinances that were against us, and he nailed them to the cross. It's people get a little bothered. I had someone uh, in my office recently, and they were, they talked a bit about the fact they had been studying the studying Exodus, and I said, man, I love the book. I love the teaching. I love the witness. I love the heart of God that we see in it toward his children. But I made the statement, I said, You realize that the Ten Commandments don't have anything to do with us anymore. I'm like, what? I'm like the Ten Commandments don't have anything to do with us anymore. And it's like that that, does, that doesn't even register. Been taught, been posted, it's ever you know, this is what makes our life better. If we'll just do these things, this will make my life better. Well, do I believe that they were against me, or were they instructions to help me live better? Well, we, if we don't get them over into the category that Colossians 2.14 says, we're going to keep committing ourselves to those rules and thinking that if I just keep them, my life will be better. And what? what but what's the explanation here? Let me read it again. He makes it pretty clear. uh And I will put my spirit within you. And what will that do? It will cause you to walk in my statutes. So what's he saying the Holy Spirit will bring to us? It will bring to us the reality of an indwelling rule, of an indwelling direction. And again, we've said it a hundred times, if not a thousand, over the course of the last year, that the Holy Spirit dwelling in me will always create a behavior better than the law could require if I, if I were to ask you Lacey to, to go with me down to the gym and I, I want I to your, test your maximum strength so you lay down and you put the bar up there and you get after it and you know that, that there's a measure of what you're able to accomplish but what if I had this unusual power to put a strength inside you, more dynamic than you, what would you expect to happen when you pressed on that bar? That max is going up, because that which dwells in you can create something more dynamic than I can create by myself. So we find a great explanation here for why the law won't pertain to me anymore, is the spirit of the law still going to be in me? Yeah, because it represents the spirit of God. But the very spirit, not the rule, not the shadow, is actually going to dwell in me and create a behavior greater than the law could ever require. Man, when we get that, we will find a level of freedom that we have never experienced before. When by his spirit, this, in, this now inside-out reality of the new covenant, it will begin to tell me, it will begin to show me, it begin to release me from rules and requirements with a full understanding that the Holy Spirit in me, if I will give him access to these hands, access to this heart to love with, access to these feet to go with, this mouth to speak with, he will produce something I can't produce. He will create a dynamic that I can't create. Again, I love, I just love the illustration. I need to keep some in here of, of a balloon filled up with me, with my lungs, my air from my lungs, tie it, hold it out. It's going to drop. Why? Because it's representing what's in it. Fill it up with helium, tie a knot, it's going to go to the ceiling. Why? Because it represents what's put in it. So when the Holy Spirit's put in me, He can create a dynamic inside me that I don't have a chance of creating. I like that life. I like that thought. I like the realization that every day I have someone who lives in me that can create something I can't create. Again, it's such a simple and maybe silly illustration, but every one of you sitting here right now are doing the impossible. Do you feel like you're doing the impossible? No, it feels pretty routine. What would happen if if the chairs from that you were sitting on were suddenly what if they just suddenly disappeared? Could you maintain that position? No because by faith your faith in that chair you're doing the impossible or the chairs letting the letting you do the impossible. What happens when we put our faith in the one who does this then we also now can live impossible lives because the one in whom we placed our faith, allows, our, allows it to appear anyway, that I'm doing the impossible. In reality, it's him. It's just simply him. I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 8 because this is where we find so much of this explanation of the two covenants. And I, I'm, I'm not going to just bore you to death with reading but there, there is just a lot to be read in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, and into 12, and I mean, this just does such a remarkable job of talking about this difference. So uh, let's go to Hebrews 8, and I'm, I'm just going to begin. The first part of it is equally good, but I'm going to begin with, with verse 7. Verse 7 begins, for if... That first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Okay, you know, we talked a few weeks ago about uh, should Christians keep the Old Testament feast? Should Christians keep under some type of a messianic uh, set of laws or rules? Should we subject ourselves to those? And I. I talked at length about that, and I'm not going to do that again. But doesn't it seem a little odd that I would, by some means or some attempt, go back and try to subject myself to a covenant that is being established here by the writer of Hebrews that had inadequacies built into it? I mean... This is the Holy Spirit talking. This isn't me making this up. look at that again. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand, to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now, let's think about this for just a second. Why did the, new, why did the Old Covenant need to be at the Old Covenant was? It's like, was there an error here? Was there an improvement made? No, there was a situation and a story that represents the heart of God and why he needed to. When, when the Jews came out of Egypt, how long had they been slaves? 400 years. That's all they knew. If you had somebody coming out of, out of a life so isolated, a life so removed, do you think you might need to tell them what to do day by day? Lead them by the hand, take them where you needed for them to go, t- retrain them, let their minds rethink. They had been in bondage for so long. All they had known was was this the, the sadness and the brokenness of serving Pharaoh the way that they had and the misery that he intended because it says that he made them serve with rigor. That is the same word where we get the word rigor mortis. He was making them serve in uh, this very hard life, making them believe that it was their fault that they were slaves. So they didn't even think about changing it. They never even considered him to be the one causing this. As a matter of fact, they considered him to be the benefactor because who was feeding them? He was. I tell you, the, the, the mind got very twisted. So does it make sense that in this old covenant that he made with them as they were coming out of Egypt, that he would have to tell them what to do, have to give them the Ten Commandments, so that they, they would, for semblance of life, that they would be able to recognize that this was a different way of thinking, all the time recognizing, uh, you know, we can look back and see it, that that wasn't where he intended for them to stay in the following commandments, that that was a direction. That's where he was taking them. And he was taking them toward a promise that he had made to Abraham. So we we get to read here that there was a reason coming out of Egypt. He was going to have to take them by the hand. He was going to have to lead them. He was going to have to do what we do with children. Don't touch that. Touch this. Do this. Don't do this. He was going to have to very specifically, in just a, a very unusual tell them exactly what to do. The law was necessary for that day. Let's continue. Because they continue not in my covenant, and I regard them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So now we get to get the beginning of a picture of of what the new covenant is going to be like. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Now, I want to tell you that's a dynamic departure from the Old Testament. Again, I wish that the church today would recognize this difference because what does that Old Covenant perpetuate? Religion or relationship? It perpetuates religion. It perpetuates this idea that the better I perform the better my external action, the happier God gets. And the answer to that, again, absolutely not. But how ingrained is that into this message? How ingrained is that into our teaching? Well, I will assure you that that day after day, week after week, congregations all, all across the country, all over the world, are being taught, if you will behave, God will love you. And actually, will teach you that He will love you more, that you will have, a, that you will live in His favor if you just do these things, perpetuating an old covenant, teaching that the external, the external effort that you that you apply is really what God is looking for, and He's telling us that in this new covenant, this new and better way, that that's not the case. Let me read it again, the end of verse ten. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach. This is an interesting statement. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. That's evangelism, isn't it? Isn't that what we're called to do? Isn't that what he says he would love for us to do? That we, are, that we are to go out and knock on doors and say, do you know God? Do you know the Lord? Do you, do you know him as your Savior? Isn't it interesting that he's saying here, you won't do that anymore? Do you think we might ought to discover why not? Why, why such a, a radical departure? Because once again, we are thinking from an outside, external position. If, if I were to say to Diana, Diana, I want you to go, I want you to carry this light bulb and I want you to go door to door and when you get there, I want you to see if you can pedal this light bulb to them so they'll have some light when they, when they screw it into a socket. That's, that's, that's the mentality. I've got something here I need, I need you to take. What if Diana began to shine like a light bulb? What's she going to sell then? She won't have to because there's going to be a couple of things going on. Like if if the person she's going to, I'm not going to sell you a light bulb. I don't have something external to give you. She's going to walk in their house and suddenly where there was darkness, it's going to light up and what are they going to say? Hey. Where's that light coming from? What are you going to be able to tell them? I swallowed that light bulb. (laughs) Sorry, I had one for you, swallowed it with it on. See, this is the distinction. I know it's it's maybe a ridiculous picture, but we're trying to deliver something external. And he's saying you won't have to because when it gets in you, There's going to be such a radical departure from what was to what's now. You're not going to have to go ask him, do you know the Lord? Because who's going to shine, radiate out of you? The Lord himself will radiate out of us according to this new covenant. So does it at least make you wonder? I wonder how many churches across this country are living in New Testament life or if they're still living an Old Testament external reality based on the things he's saying that are going to be different you won't have to say to any man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities again will I remember no more I won't attach those iniquities to them anymore. In that he saith, a new covenant. He hath made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Okay. Let me read that again. In that he said, a new, the covenant word is in italics. So if he's referring back to the covenant. But if it just, it just says a new He hath made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. So, uh, should we at least, when we approach the Old Covenant, when we approach the Old Testament, find the value in searching for the heart of God there that won't change, Or should our focus be on the doing of what it says to do? I hope that we know that I can look in that Old Testament and I can discover a great deal about the heart of God. I can understand that he came and he he, he took the, the Jews out of Egypt. He came to rescue them. And that there's great understanding in that deliverance. Why he didn't take them. The shortest route of eleven days to the promised land, because there was an enemy there. Could they have defeated that enemy? Yes, but not from the mindset that they had. He knew that they could, but that they that they mentally weren't ready. So, what does it tell him about about what does it tell us about his heart? Now, same thing. That heart hasn't changed. There are battles that we can win, but he won't let us go into them because he knows we don't have the heart yet. To let, to let us go into that battle. So we can find a great deal about the heart of God that doesn't change, but we find a lot in the direction of God, in the way that he would deal with us, there's a great difference. Is the Old Testament valuable? Extremely valuable. I love the Old Testament. I love the pictures of the Old Testament. But we have to be very careful when we start saying, well, this is what the, the law of the Old Testament said. So there's there is a lot of a lot of blessing, but some degree of caution. Let's look into chapter nine now. <clears throat> Again, he talks so much about that first covenant, the first tabernacle that was built, and all that was in it. And then he gets to let's, let's start in verse seven. He's talking about into the into the. Uh, how the service was done. Verse 7, but it says, Into the second went the high priest only once every year, going into the Holy of Holies. He's talking about not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the tabernacle was yet standing. So as long as that tabernacle stood, as long as there was this Old Testament, and that tabernacle was still in his place, he's saying that the high priest could go in, and the high priest could take the, the blood that was necessary, but he had to do it year after year because the blood of animals in the next chapter was not enough. It wasn't enough until the blood of Jesus could actually be they gain us access into the Holy of Holies. What happened at the crucifixion? What happened when, when Jesus was on the cross? What happened at the entrance of the Holy of Holies? The curtain was torn from top down, however it happened, but it's but by his by his death we gained access into the Holy of Holies. So he's saying the Holy Spirit had not yet shown us how that access would come. But what changed? What changed in the moment of Jesus' death? How do I now have access? Because the sin that once existed in me has now been completely reconciled, not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of his son, by the blood of Jesus, so that I could actually enter into the Holy of Holies because my sin has been dealt with. I am now qualified as a priest to enter into the Holy of Holies. We don't hear it taught about much anymore, but we are still very much the priesthood of the believers according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. We weren't a people, but now we are a people. We're now a, a, a nation of priests. We, we, we can't now enter in because we have our sin has been dealt with. The, so again, verse 8, The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So does it mean that now by this new and better way that we can be perfect? Tricky question. The answer is yes. Now Paul admits, he's saying, I I am not yet. But I tell you, when we get into those verses... We have some challenges when it says, be ye perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. When we get into, uh, I think it's it's either 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, or 2 Timothy Timothy 3, 15 and 16, it makes this statement that we are truly furnished unto all good works. And the instruction there is to be perfect. Now, again, I understand there's a lot of question about that word, that word, "thoroughly furnished. Again, in your Bibles, it will likely say adequately furnished or some will say thoroughly furnished. But the King James, the older versions of the King James say "thoroughly furnished. Now, "thoroughly furnished makes sense to me. Because what are the chances that I would be able to do something perfect in and of myself what's the likelihood you're right Joanne zero but what if the perfect one does them through me then is perfection possible yeah because he's the one doing it would that mean there's glory for me no that means there's glory for him is a recognition that that uh and, and significance for me in the story? Absolutely none, any more than the fact that I am a vessel that got to hold someone that was perfect. So can my hands, this by, uh, by appearances, do something perfect? Yep. Hard question. But I, go, I go back to the, to the same illustration. You're doing something right now that's totally impossible. By means of what? The chair in whom you placed your faith. If I let my faith rest in someone and I, and I suddenly become capable of the impossible... Could I roll impossible into the word perfect? If he's doing it, he does nothing else. There's not, there's not marginal in him. There's not almost in him. It's perfect. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. How can I attain that perfection? Christ in me. The hope the promise, the assurance that the impossible becomes possible. he's telling us of that. it seems right here. Let's go into uh, down to verse 14, same chapter. Uh, in between there he's talking about the fact that Jesus' blood was capable of doing what the blood of others, animals and others could not do. verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The word serve is actually the word worship. To worship the living God, verse 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death... For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That which he couldn't do, he has done. Now, knowing this doesn't make any difference unless the knowing of it becomes the biblical word know, as Adam knew Eve. That word no means I didn't just hear it. I didn't just process it. I became intimate with it. It became part of me. It began to, an internal reality in me. And by that, and only by that, can this actually occur. That I, that it is working something uniquely in me. Verse 16, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Why is that? Who's the testator? He's the person who wrote the will. So when does the will become in effect? When the testator dies. So it's it's saying this came into effect when when someone died. Well, we know who it was. We know that Jesus is the one that died. And with the death, the, the future, the, all the promises of the new covenant was based on the requirement of his death because he as the, as the maker of the will. As we would expect today, there's no will in effect until the person who wrote the will or signed the will has passed away. It's by the death that the will now has a power. It has an effect. And that's what that's that's what he's saying here. So I want us to go just quickly to chapter ten. Again, just catching, trying to catch these verses that tell us it moved from an external reality to an internal reality. Verse nineteen, and I'm missing a bunch. Uh, but but this is, these are some of my favorite verses in Hebrews in chapter ten. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus so we are not separated anymore from the holy of holies. We can walk directly and have access to the Father in the holy of holies because of the blood of Jesus. Applied to our life, faith in that blood gives me access by a new and living way it's told in John chapter 14, verse, verse 6, that, this, that, that when he said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's announcing that he is that new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Would our lives change if we simply believed that to be true? Listen to those words. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Uh, I'm going I'm to read the, my, the, the note that my Bible has on that word assurance. This is what it says. This word speaks of the Christian's joyous faith because of his fear or because of his fearless trust in God and his sure word. The Lord Jesus Christ used the word amen or verily to express the certainty of his words and their trustworthiness. Our confidence is not based on works of righteousness which we have done but on Christ's sacrifice and high priesthood. Assurance is our understanding that our souls are freed from the power of evil and from the judgment upon evil through Christ's finished work. It is not self-confidence. It is confidence in Christ. That's the kind of assurance that we have. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. You want to know why I keep saying if you're feeling guilt, if you're feeling shame, if you're feeling regret, if you're feeling blame, it's not the work of the Father. He doesn't have need of those tools. He doesn't have a need because what does he have? Truth. And what will that truth do? It will set us free. He does not have to work the manipulative things to get us to feel badly enough. As a matter of fact, it says because he is that high priest, because of this new covenant, he's not going to to do those things. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that, then we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. He said, If, and again this I loved what Zach said when Zach preached for me several months ago. Is it still possible for me to sin? Yes. But for me to sin now has to become a direct act against the nature that's placed in me. I no longer have a sin nature that produces sin naturally. What do I have in me? According according to 1 Peter. I am the partaker of what? A divine nature. And that nature that now resides in me will not produce sin. If I'm going to produce sin, I've got to act directly and intentionally against that nature. That's why he can make this statement. Because he's going to so let the old pass away that so that the new can come. I actually have a new nature existing in me. Now, First John tells us that, that if I say that there is no sin, I call me a liar and make him a liar. But I can't act. I can't sin naturally anymore. I have, there's something dynamically been done in me. There's something dynamically accomplished in us with the giving of this New Testament, the New Covenant, made possible by the blood of Jesus, and now worked, all made possible because of his spirit. I love how his spirit says his spirit did this, his spirit did this, his spirit did this, because it was all made possible, not only by the blood of Jesus, but the fact that the Holy Spirit Allowed him to hear the Holy Spirit. Allowed him to be obedient. The Holy Spirit brought him into that truth. Amazing picture. I wish we could step in daily into the fullness of what this new covenant really means. Read more of this. Let's go to one other verse, and I'll end with it. Let's, let me let me just uh, let me let me begin reading verse eighteen because it seemed like it was in this section. But this says this is the final contrast of the two of the two covenants. Verse 18, For you are not come into the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard, entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beef touched the mountains it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake But you are come unto a mount of Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as the things that are made, that, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved, and let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Again, quite a, quite a contrast between those two. Dale, who was the pastor here before me, and many of you have heard me say this, Shorty said it, others, that Dale said it wasn't hard to teach people, it was just hard to unlearn them. It's hard to get up to release that which they had heard and had become so saturated to get them to, to, to release it so that the truth could actually penetrate. Because we, the, the, the teaching of doing has been so profoundly taught, and it appeals to so many. Because if, if I can get this warm feeling if I feel like I'm doing all that I'm supposed to do. It's either going to turn to one or two things. It's going to turn to pride and legalism, or it's going to tell you it's going to turn to failure and to disillusionment. one of those two things is bound to happen. I much prefer knowing that he lives in me and that with that full understanding my capability his capability in me goes way up. Lord thank you tonight for this for this teaching thank you Lord for the scripture that that brings it home, brings it into our sight very clearly. If we don't know it now, if we don't receive it now, it's not because you haven't presented it well. It's because we're not uh, allowing ourselves fully by your spirit to receive this clarity because you don't make it hard. You even tell us all the way back in Ezekiel that you're going to put your spirit in us. So that, so that our actions and our behaviors become a reflection so that we too, as it was said of Jesus earlier in Hebrews, that we too can be the expressed image of the Father. Not because we're Jesus, but because the Spirit that lived in him also lives in us. So thank you, Father, for the teaching. Thank you for the, for the instruction. And I pray, Lord, that we, would, that we would receive it fully and let it begin to transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.